Hi everybody, Liam here. Real quick, before the show, I just want to shout out a few upcoming events. On November 15th, I'm doing an encore performance of my Bygone Berkeley presentation. It's going to be at the Shotgun Players Theater again, and last time it sold out really fast, so we decided to do it one more time. KPFA is co-hosting, and uh, I don't think we'll be adding any more dates, so if you're interested in hearing all about the highs and lows of Berkeley history, don't miss it. Also, on November 17th, I'm doing a virtual presentation for the Museum of San Ramon Valley, which is uh, out in Danville. This talk will be all about the history of Canyon, which is a tiny little village just east of Redwood Regional Park. It's a fascinating place. I did a whole trilogy about it a few years ago, which are still some of my favorite episodes. Uh, for this presentation, I'll be joined by a longtime Canyon resident and teacher, Esperanza Pratt Searles. Esperanza is wonderful. She lives in a big old geodesic dome. And uh, yeah, this should be a fun conversation. As always, you can find registration details at eastbayyesterday.com. And uh, if you want to stay up to date on this kind of stuff, sign up for my newsletter and follow me on social media. That's about it. Thanks for listening. On with the show. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. One of the things I really appreciate about studying history is that it's so incredibly humbling. Maybe this is stating the obvious, but it's worth noting occasionally, just to help keep things in perspective. Only an incredibly tiny amount of people are remembered beyond a generation or two of their lifetimes. And I don't just mean regular, everyday folks. That's a given. I mean, how many of you could name all eight of your great-grandparents? I know I can't. But what I'm talking about are people who were famous, important, Influential, like Elsie Robinson, for example. For decades, Elsie was the most read woman journalist in America, thanks to her syndicated newspaper columns, which ran from coast to coast. From the 1920s all the way up through the 1950s, millions of readers absorbed her advice on everything from housekeeping to politics. In a world ruled by men, she was one of the very few women to have a megaphone. And she used it not only to argue for women's rights, but also to denounce racism, xenophobia, and even the death penalty. She wasn't afraid of taking these unpopular positions because what she'd faced in her life was far more terrifying than a pile of angry letters. Extreme poverty, mining accidents, rattlesnakes, raising a chronically ill child, those experiences taught her to be fearless, or at least act like it. I think one of the reasons why Elsie's column became so popular is because she said things that other women wished they could get away with saying. And yet, for the most part, her words, her story, has been lost, almost entirely forgotten, until recently. 
A few weeks ago, I did a live event at the Oakland Library with Julia Shears and Allison Gilbert. They're the authors of a brand new book called Listen World, How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman. Today's episode is all about how and why they resurrected this story from obscurity. But before I play the interview, I just want to add a bit of context. At the event, Julia and Allison kicked things off by doing a slideshow about Elsie's life. But since this is a podcast, I'll just give you a summary since, you know, you won't be able to see the visuals. Elsie Robinson was born to a working class family in Benicia, California in 1883 and was kind of a rowdy tomboy, even though she was expected to act like a proper young lady. Around the time she finished high school, she met a wealthy, slightly older man from Vermont, and she moved to the East Coast to marry him. They had one child together, but despite the life of luxury, Elsie couldn't stand the religious, conservative, extremely restrictive culture of her husband's elite world. So she left it all behind and moved back to California with her son. She eventually found work as the only woman miner in a dusty mountain town up in the Sierra foothills. Her writing career began with children's stories and frontier romances, but she got her first regular newspaper gig at the Oakland Tribune after she moved back to the Bay. Her career took off almost immediately. Within a few years, she was hired by the Hearst newspaper chain, which allowed her to expand her writing beyond relationship advice and homemaking tips to, well, whatever she wanted to write about. And they paid her more than any other woman writer in the nation. How did Elsie manage to pull it off? Stay tuned to find out. This is East Bay Yesterday. Welcome and thanks for coming out on this Sunday afternoon. You know, it's great. This was Oakland where Elsie got her start in journalism, where she became famous after a lot of drama and hardship. So it feels like a homecoming of sorts to be reading about her life here, not too far from the Oakland Tribune. So. I have been pretty obsessed with Oakland history for about the last six years or so since I started doing East Bay yesterday. And I know I don't know everything, uh, but I feel like I know a lot of the major figures throughout Oakland history. So I was really surprised when I got the notification that this book was coming out. And Elsie Robinson is someone I'd never heard of before, despite being such an influential and prominent writer of her era. Um, I think the terms like hidden history and lost histories are, are somewhat overused now. Um, I get it. It helps sell books, um, but you can find books about uh, like Hidden San Francisco and the covers like the Golden Gate Bridge. So <laughs> I feel like sometimes it becomes a little bit of a cliche. Uh, however, in this case, I think that that uh, term is very accurate because as you describe in the book, her writing, her legacy, her influence has, has really, uh, for the most part, been lost to the ages for various reasons that I'm sure we'll get into during this conversation. But I just wanted to read one little paragraph real quick before jumping into the questions. And I think that uh, I love how you sprinkle some of Elsie's writings throughout the book. I think it helps the reader really connect with uh, the person who this book is about. 
And uh, I loved this little section that Elsie wrote in her journal before she was a professional writer, before she was a newspaper columnist. She was just discovering herself, spending a lot of time at libraries, appropriately enough. <laughs> and um, she wrote, quote, I only wanted one thing, to understand people, to grasp life, to make some ordered pattern out of all this seeming waste and confusion. So steadily, I observed life as it came and went in my little street and thought about it, set down what I thought, and thereby unwittingly built a bridge between my isolated cell and the vast world of human beings. And I think that that is why her writing touched so many people and why it's endured, because I think that's what great writing does. It connects us to different people and makes us recognize the connections within our communities and to people we might not have even met before, even across the span of, of decades or even a century. So thank you for bringing Elsie to life so beautifully in this book. And I wanted to start by getting back to that issue of the, the lost history or the hidden history. How did you discover Elsie? And uh, what made you think this would be a good person to write a book about? Allison should take this question. <laughs> um, I think the short answer is quite personal, and I think many people might relate to it in some ways. I think Elsie would still be completely forgotten if my mother hadn't died. And what I mean by that is, after my mother passed away, of course, like all of us have to do at some point, I had to go clean out my mother's home, my childhood home. And my task was to pack up my mother's books. And I was having a really tough time. I was 25, and I felt too young to have lost a mom. And I made the task take a very long time because I was going through every single one of her books to see what she had annotated, to look at her handwriting one more time, to see if she had left me a little note, you know, hoping that there was a tether. And lo and behold, something did actually fall out of one of my mother's books. Do you remember that old onion skin paper from back in the day? My mother had retyped a poem that was called Pain, P-A-I-N, and it was the most tough love poem about grief and loss that I had ever come across. It was basically like a slap across the face, and it was, the essence of it was, be grateful you had a mother worth missing. And it was attributed to someone named Elsie Robinson. And I just had to know more about who this woman was, and in so doing, why my mother had retyped the poem herself. What would have made my mom so attracted to this woman's writing that she chose to retype it? And so that was the seed. And I know that you spent about a decade or so researching this book. It sounds like it wasn't an easy task. What were some of the biggest challenges when you were trying to unearth facts about Elsie's life that seemed like they were pretty, pretty well buried? Do you want to talk I, about that? I think you. Oh, okay. she, so Allison has been involved in this project far longer than I have. Um, you know, it was hard. Well, anytime there is uh, so few breadcrumbs to follow it's going to be a challenge. I think had we taken on a biography about Abraham Lincoln, yeah. uh, which has been terrain that is popular, um, but well mapped in many ways, I think our job would have been a little bit more easy. 
I think that there was no Elsie Robinson archive either. So there wasn't a biography to follow. There wasn't an archive to go where all of her papers, let's say, were collected under one building. And in many ways, the paper trail that we had to follow, we had to reverse engineer. So men tend to get recognition more in some cases than women. And so we had to find out about her life through the men who employed her. Mm -hmm. So the William Randolph Hearst archive had buried within it letters between William Randolph Hearst himself and Elsie Robinson, both to William Randolph Hearst, the chief, and to Elsie Robinson from the chief. But other historians would not have valued those letters because they didn't know who Elsie Robinson was. And so to us, that was a gold mine. And similarly, and I'll, the last example I'll Please, use, yeah. but it's very germane, is that at the New York Evening Journal, the editor there was Hearst's main right-hand man, a man named Arthur Brisbane, hugely famous columnist in his own right, and he has an archive too, and that's at Syracuse University in New York. And in that gentleman's archive was incredible treasure to be found about Elsie Robinson. So it was taking her life and reverse engineering who would have access to Elsie's story. And in many cases, it was the men who were her bosses. And uh, that was a challenge. Well, you did an amazing job digging up the story. Uh, like, for example, the, the photo of the typewriter that you just showed a minute ago, like literally finding her typewriter buried in the back of an old post office in like an abandoned mining town must have been a stunning moment. But, you know, one of the themes in this book is really how throughout her life, Elsie's constantly pushing against the limitations that were put on women during the Victorian era. And one of the ways that you uh, illustrate that most vividly is a section towards the beginning of the book where you describe the process of getting dressed for proper young Victorian ladies. And I think, you know, most people have probably heard of a corset or like a choker, but you go through this laundry list of things that women were expected to wear. Can you talk a little bit about that process and, um, yeah, like how you use that as sort of a metaphor for the uh, world that Elsie was living in when she was growing up in Benicia? You know, so we used... Elsie's voice throughout the book. She was almost like another author because she wrote a, a memoir that was out of print when we were working on our book. And there were sections, you know, which was kind of strange as, you know, a, a narrative nonfiction writer, you know, I'm used to like being in control of the story and it's my, you know, my view or my take. But she had such a vivid, amazing way of telling her own story that we have a lot of sections that we've taken from the memoir and italicized. And so the section that you're referring to is she talks about getting dressed and how long it would take a Victorian girl to get dressed with the, the corset, the corset cover, the bustle, the, the bustle cover. And it's just like, and it's funny. You know, it's in her, she has a very unique, funny voice that is just... I mean, it sounds like she's getting ready to go deep sea diving yes. or something yeah. like that with the layers <laughs> Just, upon layers oh of gear. Gosh. No, and yeah. then she laughs. It's like, of course, you know, women and girls were virtuous. How could they not be <laughs> because yeah. of all yeah. of these layers chaining you down? 
And I think that um, these restrictions, we you can talk about them, you can describe them, but sometimes there's like a little anecdote in the book that really just gets you right here and makes you realize just how brutal, really, and horrific it was for women growing up in this time. And I'm thinking specifically of a person that you mentioned by the name of Ida Craddock. Mm. And I think her, it, this is just maybe half a page that you describe Ida Craddock's story, but I think that one section really um, exemplifies what happened to women who transgressed the norms of their era. So I was wondering if you could explain to people who Ida Craddock was and what happened to her. Right. So it gave a lot of context for what was happening with women at the time to put Elsie's life in perspective. And so Ida Craddock, and there's a lot of women that we've kind of mentioned throughout the book, she was the one that wrote the tracks, like for Well, West. she took her own life. Um, at never. Right, right. But before that, isn't that, okay. Yeah, yeah. She wrote like basically the article about how sex for women doesn't have to just be this painful thing that you're submitting to right. with your husband. Right, so it was considered pornography at the time to even write about sex. And she was trying to help women by you know, writing about like the newlyweds, what to expect on your wedding night, how the husband can make sure that his wife is okay and enjoys it and everyone's happy because while we were researching you know there was a dearth of information nobody talked about sex and women were terrified on their honeymoon night you know there were stories of you know women on their honeymoon night seeing their husband naked and aroused for the first time and like running out of the room and back home, because <laughs> what is that, right? I mean, this is, a, <laughs> this is the kind of ignorance that Ida Craddock was trying to militate against. And so she wrote these tracks, just how-to practical tracks. It was like reproductive women. health, basically, yes. in some ways. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the uh, Comstock, Anthony Comstock, and the Comstock Law made it so if you sent any of that type of materials through the mail, it was illegal, it was a federal offense, and she'd already done prison time for publishing these tracts, and then he got her again, and instead of going to prison a second time, she chose to kill herself, right? Just for trying to help women. And in the book, we have a lot of great um, material on women helping women like women trying to educate women about sexuality or about childbirth, another thing women were terrified about. While the male OBs were telling women, like, you know, just stay home, take it easy, listen to gentle music, don't read anything upsetting so your baby doesn't come out a psychopath. You know, there were, there were women who were like, you know, you need to exercise. You know, this is, this is the stages. These are the stages of labor. This is what you can expect. These are some things you can do to feel comfortable. I mean, again and again, it was like women helping women. This like underground movement of women trying to help women because, you know, for a long time, men were the ones who were like, this is the way it has to be. Yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I wish, you know, Julia just touched on it, but in terms of the fear of childbirth, um, I admit um, having two of my own children to taking for granted what it means to give birth in this day and age. When Elsie was pregnant and expecting and knew that labor was coming, this is actually not an exaggeration. 
she would bequeath some of her belongings away to her sister because she was not expecting to survive childbirth. Those were very real fears that women went into labor not with the joy and expectation of having a baby on the other side, but with absolute dread that they may not make it to the other side. And as a mom, I, I felt for Elsie in those sections in a way that um, I wasn't anticipating as a writer. And um, so birth became much more of a magical event when it went successfully. Yeah. And here's a statistic for you. In 1904, one in 30 American women died in childbirth. Right? Oh. And it, even if they didn't die, they could be maimed from the interventions to pull out the child. So. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why this book is so hard to put down, I mean, I read it and just like, I literally just could not put it down as, a, as soon as I started reading it. It's like a roller coaster ride. Her life is um, phenomenal. And uh, there's so many twists and turns. And so she grew up, as you mentioned in the intro, like sort of in this working class family in Benicia. Uh, not a lot of sort of prospects for her future until she happens to marry this wealthy Victorian era gentleman from the East Coast. And you're like, cool, she's got it made now, she's marrying this rich guy. Yeah. As soon as she gets there, she realizes it's not a good scene for her. She's so, so wild and has so much personality and they just want her to be very strict, very ladylike, very religious. And so she eventually escapes that life and comes back to California and uh, moves to this kind of like a semi-abandoned mining town. It's like, the, it's post-gold rush, yeah. there's barely any gold left, they're just trying to scrape whatever they can out of the earth. And that's when she really gets serious about the craft of writing. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how that process of working in such a physically demanding, kind of isolating environment maybe informed what you read in her writing throughout her career. I think that's a great question. I think there's two ways to answer it. One I think that many of us can relate to is how do you crack open time for what you hope to be your passion, like for the career that you really want, for the future that you aspire to? How do you make time in your busy life to have that side hustle? And I feel like that's what many of us do now. We get up yeah. early, we stay up late, we work on weekends. There's a passion that we all want. And that's what Elsie was trying to do. There was the reality of what she had to do to put food on the table for her son, George. She was a single mom, had no prospects. That's what got her to the gold mine. She literally worked 600 feet below the surface of the earth to mine for gold. Dynamite blasts, you know, anything that you think about gold mining, that is what she was like She doing. was dragging rocks out yeah. of yeah. I mean, tunnels. this was, uh, she could have died, you know, this was dangerous work. People did die in the mine. And so that's one way to answer that question. But in terms of her fiction, because she wasn't only a nonfiction columnist or reporter, but in her fiction, she would use the characters of the cowboys and, you know, the kind of wonderful relationships that men and women had in this free community, in this free environment that wasn't kind of buttoned up like Vermont. There were just none of the class issues in the mine. And she spoke about that, that we are all common bred, that in some ways the worst part of her life 
when she was at rock bottom, when she had no money, when she went there to save her son's life because that's where he could breathe free. We haven't talked about his chronic bronchial issues, his asthma. And in the gold mines is when the dry air was healing for him. But it was in that place where you would think that would be the rock bottom worst time in her life. That was actually the time that she looks back on and says was the most liberating. That gave her her kind of fodder and that scaffolding to propel her to greater heights. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how she did it. She had to walk four miles to the mine, which we found. Um, yes. We didn't go down inside of it because it's all caved in now. But we got a tour from the landowner of the, you know, the environs. So I think, you know, walking to the mine for four, you know, four miles and then in the evening walking back home and she's going by these ranches and she's having like all of these amazing adventures you know it was fodder for her fiction you know so all of these short stories it was the heyday of literary magazines around you know the early 1900s so like the black hat uh, mcclure's um gosh, smart set smart set <laughs> so yeah so many literary magazines where you know they they realized that at that point that they could just sell advertising. So they needed a lot of writers, a lot of copy in the magazines, and it was a, a wonderful time for writers yeah. as yeah, well. Definitely. Um, I'm kind of skipping ahead chronologically here, but I'm just thinking about sort of how ironic it is that she went on to become one of the most influential and well-read uh, advice columnists in the country. And in her own personal life, she broke all the rules, was so unconventional, you know, did things that people in proper, proper quote-unquote, proper society would have frowned upon, like having, you know, sex outside of wedlock and doing these jobs that women weren't supposed to do. And she ended up becoming like a role model or, you know, this, this fountain of sage wisdom for, that so many women ended up following. You know, she was amazing. When she got <laughs> divorced, um, her husband found out that she was shacking up with this guy in Hornitos and accused her of adultery with this said individual and probably many others. And this was covered nationally in the papers, like this adultery accusation, you know. But she, the thing about Elsie is that she always lived according to what she wanted to do, which was so unique at that time, right? Yeah. She pursued her own dreams of becoming a writer, her own self-fulfillment. As you said, after she had it made, she had the mansion, she had the rich guy, she had the baby, she could have settled like so many women did and still do, but she's like, I want something else. Yeah. You know, I want something more. Yeah. And so after she leaves Hornitos and comes back to the Bay, her career, the first sort of rung on the ladder after the literary uh, story, the literary magazine stories that she begins publishing, her first job is with the Oakland Tribune. Yes. yes. And um, there's a section in the book where you describe how she sort of barges into yeah. the Oakland Tribune. This is up at Tribune Tower, just a few blocks from here, yeah. after getting rejected by all the San Francisco papers. Oakland Tribune is sort of her last chance, her last hope to get a, get a column. And I was wondering if you could read that section, because it, it really um, is so vivid. You just really bring that scene to life. Yeah, definitely. So here is just, um, it's about a two-page section. She rode the ferry from the Embarcadero 
across the velvet blue waters of the bay to the Oakland Pier. Oakland was half the size of San Francisco, with a population of 215,000 people, many of whom had arrived as refugees after the 1906 earthquake and fire destroyed their homes. The Tribune's gleaming new building wasn't hard to find. Its massive clock tower could be seen from blocks away, with a huge clock facing in each direction. Spanning the top of the clocks was a four-sided sign that ran half the length of the building and spelled out Tribune, again, in each direction. Elsie pushed through the glass doors, consulting a directory, and walked past the marble counters of the advertising department to a wall of elevators. Editorial was on the fourth floor. The newsroom was huge, a space spanning nearly the full length of the building and filled with men in suit jackets shouting into phones, banging on typewriters and smoking cigarettes. Two pneumatic tube systems stretched across the ceiling, each curving dramatically toward the floor, allowing messages to be whooshed between departments. Several reporters turned to watch the tall woman in outmoded dress enter their sanctum and stroll toward the desk of the well-respected managing editor, Leo Levy. Mr. Levy, as his reporters deferentially called him, was a soft-spoken man given to terse, sometimes acidic comments. He'd risen through the paper's ranks for nine years and would go on to lead it for another 40. I'm going to stop here just for one more sure. second because mm -hmm. we're in the Oakland Public Library. The only reason why we know about the newsroom and about those pneumatic tube systems is that the Oakland History Center has these great archival descriptions of the paper back at Elsie's time. So again, thanks to the Oakland Public Library. Levy looked up at Elsie a bemused expression on his face. She handed him her pages. A queer creature I must have seemed to him, standing there in my rags, with the room going around me in a gray blur. But his gaze sharpened as he began looking through the drawings and the stories. Kids' columns, he assured me, are a flop. I began mechanically to gather my material together again. I've tried it before and failed. His voice receding further and further still persisted. But perhaps the room steadied, became enormously still. Perhaps there's something to this stuff. So if you're interested, I'll give it a chance, a column, weekly, animal stories, illustrated, at $12 per week. It took a moment for her to steady her thoughts and form words to speak. I'm interested, Elsie said, mm -hmm. making sure her voice matched Levy's even tone. Then bring your first column tomorrow. That would be all right. She managed to keep her composure until she left the building. Then somehow, I was on the elevator, going down. I was sitting on a stool before a short order counter, wolfing down three hamburger sandwiches, one after the other, with people looking curious at me, nudging. I was starting for the ferry, turning suddenly, ducking down a back alley, vomiting, vomiting. And presently, I was running down the hall, 
into the apartment, shouting, calling, throwing myself across his bed, my arms full of, of flowers and food, kissing him, crying, laughing. I had my first newspaper job. I would not have to go on the streets, and my boy and I could eat. Her first big break, yeah. amazing scene. So as the editor said, you know, kitty columns are a flop. And he tried it before, it didn't work out. Can you talk a little bit about what made Elsie's writing and drawing different, why she became so popular so fast, and just kind of go over the trajectory of these early years of her career because as soon as they realize that she's popular, they just start giving her more work and more work, and her sort of little media empire expands pretty quickly. Yeah. So what made her drawings and her work so appealing? Yeah. I think I think she was born with a gift, yeah. and she was incredibly driven. But you saw the illustrations from, um, I think one was from, oh, those were from the readers, yep. right? Yep. So she was able you know, to both tell a very compelling story and to illustrate the story. Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, that Leo Levy saw that gift and, you know, once the children started writing in and excited and then their parents started reading her column and then that was another market, you know, so she gradually went from writing for children, her column kept expanding to end up at eight pages long and was called Aunt Elsie's Magazine with the clubs and the pens um, then she started writing for adults, and she started doing the, the regular women's sections. I think her first, one of her first columns was called Cutlets and Curtains. Curtains, Collars, and Cut-Ups or something. Curtain, curtains, Collars, and Cutlets. Yes, <laughs> right? It was just, and it was kind of like advice for, you know, housewifery, essentially, how to run a household. But then she gained the respect of her male colleagues because they were the ones making the decision, right, of who should write what. And she was able then to leap from writing for children and women to having this national column, Listen World, where she opined on everything from, you know, politics of the day mm -hmm. to women's, the women's condition, to racism, to anti-Semitism, all kinds of important issues, not just women's or children's issues. I would just, I would add to that, I feel like um, one part of Elsie's character that I found so compelling was that she was highly strategic. And to me, it was no accident that she so carefully curated her brand. And I feel like even today we can recognize the importance of brand. Bloggers have brands. Reporters often have, you know, beats. And she became the Aunt Elsie brand. There was an Aunt Elsie uh, club. There were Aunt Elsie shows. Uh, kids dressed up in character outfits um, that bespoke of the kind of things that she was writing about in her column. The idea that she would publish what the children wrote in was not unsmart, right? There was a reason for that because kids love to see themselves in the paper. And so if you're looking to see your column, 
your article, your poem, your drawing as a child, you're gonna scoop up those papers when it comes out because you're gonna wanna see yourself in print and your parents are gonna wanna save that, right? To this day, you, can, you wanna clip out your kid in the paper. She would print out their birthdays. And so I think that was all very um, carefully constructed. And I feel confident to say that it was not an accident of somebody else's making, because when later, when she did her Listen World column, well into her career, she devoted one of her columns per week to young adults, to people who were in college or just working their first jobs. And she turned the mic, so to speak, over to them so they could have their stay. And she pitted those young people against the adults so they can take on those very issues that Julia was just talking about, the urgent issues of the day, to have the youngsters say what they thought against the oldsters and what they thought. And I feel like that also, we talk about being in an interactive age now on social media where there's a call and response between reporter and the public and people comment. I feel in some ways she was like the original blogger because she was creating an interactive platform back in 1918, 1919, when she asked the kids to write in, when she published their stories, when she wrote back. We have one Aunt Elsie fan, at least here today, who saved memorabilia yeah. from Aunt Elsie's time, which is incredible that we talked during the reporting of the book, so we can talk about that. That was clever because there created a stake. People felt they knew Elsie. They wanted to have Elsie Robinson in their lives, and that continued with her Listen World column. So I feel like strategy, branding, businesswoman, entrepreneur, those are all words that I would say um, are a part of her incredible rise to fame. Yeah, absolutely. And she did take off. Her career took off so fast when she got her platform at the Oakland Tribune. Uh, in fact, so fast that if I did have one little complaint with this book, it's just that the, the Oakland chapter is not very huge. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking forward to that. And it's like she's moving on and up in the world pretty quickly, which happens to a lot of people who become successful in Oakland, unfortunately, to this day. Um, but, uh, she never forgot her Oakland roots. Oh, can you? So that's what I was going to ask if you could talk a little bit about anything else um, related to her connection to Oakland and the East Bay that didn't make it into the book, maybe that you came across in your research. Oh, gosh, I mean, the, the process of writing a book is you know, you write nonfiction and life hands you too much. It's like narrowing down what's germane to the story, what's important, you know, and then. She has a flair in her writing. Um, you know, if you read this section in italics where we quote her, she can be a little bit over the top, and it's like, what? So sometimes, <laughs> you know, we would, we would fact check her, yeah, of course, being sure. the good journalists that we are, um, but really just trying to compact the story. Yeah. And the tragedy, again, is there was no Elsie Robinson archive when she died. You know, this is all original work, so... It's, it's going in, as Allison said, to the archives of these men, these important publishers, and finding like a letter that one of them sent to Elsie or received from Elsie or an interview that Elsie did about Arthur Brisbane and then gleaning the facts and the information from that and putting them into our story. 
I would say things that didn't that were on the cutting room floor because Julia is completely correct. You can't put everything in. Uh, we have so many of these Aunt Elsie uh, correspondence between her and her children's fans. Diana and I had shared some of those, I believe, um, over time. Uh, the Oakland Museum of California had this incredible um, membership card um, where they had an example of what these Aunt Elsie membership cards looked like. And uh, we had to make some choices. What's more fun to look at, a pin or a card, you know? Yeah. Uh, but we did have just a plethora of memorabilia that people saved. You know, you would appreciate this, Liam. There are so many Facebook groups that are, maybe some of you came because you saw the, this event featured on some of these old um, San Francisco history, East Bay history uh, Facebook pages. But in these Facebook groups that I have loved to kind of look around and post in and kind of get information from, there are a lot of sentimental people who remember Aunt Elsie and what that meant to their childhood. And if you do the math, it seems improbable because Elsie died in 1956, so how can these people still be around? But what happened was, this is part of Elsie's incredible... I mean, Facebook is mostly people in their 70s and 80s now, right? <laughs> but here, here, here's the magical thing that's true, is that she died in 56, but the Aunt Elsie brand in the Oakland Tribune endured until 1970. Yes. Writing in her voice, someone took over her column. And wrote yeah. voice. Well, the media has always known how to milk their uh, most profitable <laughs> aff- assets, so that doesn't really surprise me too much. Um, but that that is amazing, and I just want to back up a second and say, even though you know I was complaining a minute ago about you guys not having more Oakland <laughs> stuff, I do appreciate that you edited it to a very readable length. You know, you look at some of these books, like a Wilman Vol- William Volman book that's like a thousand pages long, and you're like, yeah. never going to read that. It's a cinder block. So I, I trust your judgment on whittling it down to a to a streamlined story. Um, and I think that there's sort of this big question kind of hanging over the book, hanging over any conversation about Elsie Robinson, which, um, you know, I'm not sure how, how deep you want to get into it, but there's this huge mystery of how her legacy has been so forgotten. Why has her work been lost? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, we could both address it. But I, I think, as we mentioned, she died and, you know, she did not donate her papers to any archive. So, you know, if you might consider that if you have, you know, have lived a vivid life or have a lot of memorabilia that could be of interest, you know, give it to somebody or give it to an archive. Her, you know, and then she didn't have any heirs um, to help keep and protect her legacy. And wasn't there like some copyright issues with her work too, which made republishing challenging or something along those lines? Yeah, so there's there's two parts of that. So her memoir came out in 1934, and through a shocking clerical error, her publisher didn't renew the copyright for the book in the correct fashion. So it reverted to the public domain. So... Which benefited us because then we could, yes, you know, quote from it liberally in our own. It book. definitely benefited us. However, it doesn't benefit 
the publisher nor her heirs um, because that doesn't then exist only within her family. And there's, there's one other... So that basically disincentivized reprinting her work if they couldn't... Well, of course, because yeah. it's not on the publisher's backlist. Yeah. So there's no right. incentive to keep it going. Um, the one thing I would say which kind of paints a larger picture of why I'm so incredibly proud of this book, um, Laura Mazur is here in the house, and while now she is a big-time literary agent, um, back uh, a few years ago, she was the executive editor at the publishing house that took on this project. And we are so grateful to Laura for giving Elsie her due. And I will say one thing about that is that I hope this book helps other women's stories bubble to the top. There has been a steady erasure of women's histories over time, which contributes to her invisibility. Um, one quote that I feel is very um, demonstrative of this, um, the National Women's History Museum conducted an exhaustive research initiative. And the results of that initiative are too long to go into now. However, there is one fact, there's one factoid that I think is very germane, is that in this country, when you look at how social studies history classes are taught, kindergarten through 12th grade, the National Women's History Museum has concluded that of all the historical figures that are taught, 24% are women. And so if you don't learn about women's history in school as often as you learn about men's history in school, then you're gonna be exposed to fewer women's stories, which means that when you go to write your thesis, when you go to get your PhD, or you're in a high school class and you're doing a research report, then perhaps the same other journalists that you've always heard about will get their due in that paper. Yeah. And you're not going to uncover a new piece of history. So I hope for this book that it gives light, it gives you know, oxygen to other women's stories. I hope so too. And I mean, it's just such an important chapter in I think the evolution of, of women's rights or you, know, you might wanna call it feminism throughout the 20th century. Uh, we learn about women's suffrage in the teens, and then it's like almost like nothing happened until Rosie the Riveter, and Rosie the Riveter wasn't even a real person. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, of course she was symbolically uh, standing in for a whole generation of women, but uh, it's really an important um, connection between like the suffragette era and the, and the 50s and 60s um, that I think is really like, uh, not well known, so hopefully this book, like you said, helps inspire people to dig into some of the other yes. lost histories on this topic. Hopefully. Yeah. Also, yeah. I just want to say, you know, she is just a really inspiring person to read yes. about because she was so driven, just so consumed by, you know, becoming something better, by following her dream at a time when women did not do this. So, I don't know, I hope people come to it and after reading it, just feel inspired and more passionate about pursuing their own dreams, whatever they are, yeah. and sacrificing to make that happen. Lee, 
Liam, thank you yes. oh, my for doing you. this yeah. with us. We love your podcast. Yes. We you. love it. And we are so grateful. Yes. Clearly, you have many fans who have yeah. heard you and have followed you on social media. And that's why you are here. And so it's not lost on us. Your reach is huge. And so we yes. thank you all for coming and sharing our yes. enthusiasm of Elsie yes, Robinson. You. Oh, you know, just one more thing I want to mention. So in addition to the podcast, I'm a, I'm a tour guide. I take people out on boat tours of the Bay. And just on Friday night, um, I was uh, out on a boat giving people a tour near Yerba Buena Island. And you probably don't know this, or most people probably don't know this unless you've got your own boat or something because it's not really a visible thing, but there's a lighthouse halfway between Oakland and uh, San Francisco that was built all the way back in 1867 to guide ferries uh, back and forth across the bay. And when I was giving the tour the other night, I was thinking about how Elsie Robinson probably passed by that same lighthouse all those years ago because it's been here for you know 150 years. And I was thinking about it specifically because that section that you read earlier in the uh, conversation about how she you know hopped on the ferry with all the butterflies in her stomach with one you know last dream to uh, get a job with a local newspaper and Wait, how that I finally see an came LC true. Elsie Robinson tour. There you go. In the future. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going down into that gold mine. It doesn't sound very safe. So. Thank you. All right, thanks everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. Extra special thanks goes out to Aaron Sanders of the Oakland History Center for organizing this event at the library and everyone who came out to see it in person. Also, big thanks to those of you who are supporting this show on Patreon. Your donations are greatly appreciated. I wouldn't be able to keep doing the show without you. And if anyone else out there wants to be a supporter, please hit that donate link at eastbayyesterday.com. While you're there, once again, you can check out the events page for details about my Bygone Berkeley show uh, that's coming up soon, and also the Canyon history presentation. And uh, you can also find my newsletter there. Uh, If you like the show, Please help me spread the word. Uh, tell people on social media, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, family, shout it from the rooftops. Let the world know about East Bay yesterday. I would be really, really grateful if you did. Music this week came from Justin Lee, and that's going to do it. Oh, and if I sound a little different this week, it's because I'm just getting over COVID. Boo! Get your boosters, folks. They really do help. Okay, bye.